Intelligent Speech is happening online on Saturday, June 25th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and consists of four simultaneous rooms presenting engaging talks, roundtable discussions, and rousing Q&As. Trevor Cully from the History of Persia podcast. Tegan Phillips of the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. And Gary Stevens from the History in the Bible podcast. Sarah of the Rejects and Revolutionaries podcast. Me and Christy, the host of Terranauts. Jamie Jeffers from the British History podcast. Tickets are available at intelligentspeechconference.com and your ticket entitles you to both live attendance and access to all recordings after the fact if you cannot be there at the time or want to catch more of the amazing content happening simultaneously. Ancient Persian propaganda in modern Iran. Napoleonic-themed roundtable. Solar spectroscopy. Themistocles and the space program and the collective power of the big idea. Tickets again are available at intelligentspeechconference.com and we hope to see you there. About three, let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When the mission controllers in Carnarvon, Australia, finally received the message that they'd been waiting for, they must have breathed a sigh of relief. Just the same as the controllers in the other Gemini tracking stations around the world, on Grand Canary Island, in Guayamas, Mexico, in Hawaii, and on board the tracking ships at sea. All of them would have reached for the envelope labeled Plan X, that had probably been sitting somewhere well-chosen to be out of the way, but easily accessible, out of the way so that it would not drive everyone crazy thinking about what it contained, but close enough at hand that when they finally got the word to open it, they could find out quickly what the really big secret was. Well, with just a week to go until the launch of Gemini 4, that moment had finally arrived. You will recall that when we left the Gemini mission control team, they were busily preparing for Gemini 4, the second manned mission of the Gemini program, and really the first working mission, since Gemini 3 had really been a very short three-orbit flight to check the new Gemini spacecraft and its major systems. And that had been just two months previously, in late March of 1965. Now, it was the last week of May, and mission controllers were busily getting ready to launch again. And this time, they would really be getting down, or rather up, to work, doing... Well, that was kind of the issue. Everyone knew that they had a plan of a series of experiments that the crew of Jim McDivitt and Ed White would be performing. A range of medical and physiological tests, a lot of what we today would call Earth observation activities, and a series of radiation measurements. But everyone also knew, or at least suspected that something else was in the wind for Gemini 4. Something big. It was rumored that Chris Craft and Gene Krantz, the lead and number two flight directors, knew what was going on, but no one else seemed to, or if they did, they weren't saying. It was all very hush-hush. So hush-hush, in fact, that when the remote site teams had departed for their stations almost two weeks previously, 
They had all been given those big envelopes labeled Plan X and had been threatened with a range of extremely unpleasant consequences if they were to open the envelopes before they were instructed to. Well, finally, they were being instructed to. And they and the rest of the mission control teams uh, were being invited, well, more like summoned, to a briefing where they would all find out what the heck was going on. What they found out was probably, for most of them, equal parts alarming and exciting. It turned out that NASA was going to try to accomplish a couple of firsts on Gemini 4. One of them was a first for NASA, and the other was a first for human spaceflight. It was literally the kind of moment that most mission controllers lived for, which was why it would have been very exciting. Uh, They were just used to having more than a week to get used to the idea. A lot more than a week, which would have been the alarming part. Now, we had talked in the last episode about the first of these firsts, and that was that Ed White was going to attempt NASA's very first EVA, or spacewalk. It wasn't the first one ever, because the Soviets had completed a spacewalk as part of the Voshkod 2 mission in mid-March. What was going to be new was that the Gemini 4 crew were going to attempt the very first rendezvous maneuver on orbit. Now, also, as we had talked about in the last episode, neither the rendezvous target vehicle nor the rendezvous radar unit was going to be available for Gemini 4, so rendezvous was going to take um, a little bit of ingenuity. Well, that ingenuity had actually been supplied on Gemini 3. On that mission, Gus Grissom had turned the spacecraft around after separation so that he could observe the booster as it moved away from the capsule. He had wondered aloud whether or not it might be possible to actually try to maneuver to keep station with it. After all, it was there, and he could see it, uh, so at least ostensibly he didn't need a radar to find it. Um, it was seemed pretty tempting to him to give it a try, but of course Grissom was constrained from giving it a try on Gemini 3, because Gemini 3 really didn't have room for doing anything but making sure that everything on the capsule worked and was properly checked out. But the conversation between Grissom and Capcom Gordon Cooper firmly cemented the idea that maybe Rendezvous could be attempted on Gemini 4 by using the spent booster as the target. And... Since they were planning to do an EVA anyway, why not send Ed White over to inspect the booster while they were keeping station on it? Talk about swinging for the fences. But that, in the intervening eight weeks, was what NASA had decided it would try to do. So flight controllers were not only confronted with assimilating procedures for two operations they were, that were not only technically challenging, but hugely risky, Let's face it, uh, there were multiple ways to kill one or both of the crew here, up to and including crashing into the spent booster with an EVA crew member in the middle of it all. And they only had a week to prepare. It must have been quite a week. And let's remember that at least for the ground, Gemini 4 was already a step into the unknown. The whole mission control process had, in effect, been redesigned for Gemini 4. I mean, sure, Gemini 3 had been run out of the new control center in Houston, but it was essentially run like a Mercury mission, uh, with one flight director and one set of flight controllers. At a little over four hours in length, it not only did not need multiple flight control shifts, it couldn't really make use of any second-line engineering support during the mission either. There just wasn't time to involve flight controllers other than those directly involved in supporting the mission. For Gemini 4, though, the world was suddenly quite different. 
First of all, the mission was going to last over four days, which meant that flight control shifts and multiple flight directors were going to be needed. Now, NASA had faced the situation of needing to operate for more than one shift uh, on the last Mercury flight, Gordon Cooper's flight of Faith 7, but the arrangements for that flight had felt eh, a little ad hoc. True, John Hodge had been named as the second flight director, but the flight had been arranged such that pretty much all of the flight activities occurred on Chris Kraft's team shift, and Hodge's team really didn't have a lot to do but monitoring the spacecraft. Uh, for Gemini 4, it would be different. Three shifts were going to be needed. True, most of the major on-orbit activities would occur while Kraft's red team was on shift, but they couldn't do it all over a four-day mission. So the days were split into three time periods. The main part of the crew activities were focused on the execute shift, which was handled by Kraft's red team. But Gene Kranz's white team would come on for the system shift at the end of the crew working day. And although they didn't have a lot of crew ma major crew activities to handle, they would spend a good deal of time with the crew, taking stock of the state of the spacecraft and tracking the use of consumables, which was a bit of an abiding obsession for mission controllers and crew alike, because of the unprecedented length of the mission. Their crew would go into the sleep period during the system shift, and the white team would hand over to Rich Hodge's blue team, who would take the planning shift. They would assimilate the data and analysis from the system shift, and make adjustments for the plan for the following day, or days, depending on what they saw. They would wake the crew up and get the day started, handing over again to the execute shift on Kraft's team. It's interesting to note that more than 40 years after Gemini, much of this routine was preserved in mission control during the shuttle era. While the two crew daytime shifts were no longer called execute and systems, having been relabeled Orbit 1 and Orbit 2 by then, but the Orbit overnight shift was still the planning shift, and the set of instructions they prepared for the crew to wake up to was still called the execute package for the following day. But in 1965, this was all brand new to flight controllers. In retrospect, the transition seemed to go without any serious issues, and no doubt flight controllers had had several full-up simulations in which they and the crew practiced the new routines, including the handoffs between the various shifts. But in the last week before the launch of Gemini 4, it was still um, an unknown country. An unknown country where their crew was about to go outside for a walk for the very first time. Although this episode is far less famous than the job done by the Apollo 13 flight control crew, uh, for good reason, it remains to me one of the most impressive achievements in the history of mission control. It was a testament to the team, but also to the leadership, provided by Chris Kraft and Gene Krantz, that confronted by a situation that was so fraught with possibilities for things going horribly wrong, and for flight controllers to be left holding the bag for issues not of their own making, even in the face of that reality, the team simply took a deep breath, opened the books, started their briefings, and got ready to make history. I'm sure they all hoped it would be the right kind of history. And by and large, it was. History remembers that the countdown for Gemini 4 was almost flawless, and that it had headed skyward pretty much right on schedule on the morning of the 2nd of June, 1965. History has more or less forgotten that the first step into the unknown, uh, the attempted rendezvous between the spacecraft and its booster, didn't actually go very well at all. Uh, once the booster had separated, McDivitt waited for it to drop behind the capsule, and then he turned the capsule around to face it. He had no trouble at all seeing the booster, 
Uh, it was, as expected, behind and below him. He began doing some careful and deliberate OM's burns that he thought should start closing the distance. Unfortunately, despite his best efforts, the booster actually started pulling away from the capsule, and the more correction he applied, the faster it flew away. At one point, during a dark pass, the crew thought they were gaining on the booster, but when the sun came up, it was farther away than ever. They estimated it was three to five kilometers away, and the distance was again increasing. Now, given the fuel constraints of the rest of the mission and the need to start planning for Ed White's spacewalk, McDivitt had to reluctantly conclude that the very first attempted rendezvous in orbit would have to be concluded unsuccessfully. Well, it was unsuccessful in that the capsule had not been able to keep station on the booster. In terms of a learning experience about how to do rendezvous in orbit, it was actually very successful. And the first lesson that everybody had to learn was that orbital rendezvous just can't be done by eye. You see, normally for a pilot, well, or for anyone in point of fact, achieving rendezvous uh, is really just a matter of identifying uh, where the thing you want to join up with is, figuring out where it's going, and then going there to arrive at the same time that it does. Um, it, it, frankly, this is basically the process we use every time we do something like catching a ball. Um, the more experience you have doing it, the better you get. And Jim McDivitt was an experienced test and fighter pilot who had a lot of experience. But on orbit, simply knowing the relative location and motion of your target object isn't enough. Now, we did discuss this a bit in an earlier episode. The problem is that objects in orbit, uh, because they're in orbit, don't move in straight lines. For a spacecraft in orbit, its motion is all about, well, its orbit. And you can't just point your nose at something and then fire your thrusters and go there. Instead, you have to think about how that impulse, that thrust, is going to affect your entire orbit. If you're pointing forward, meaning along the direction of travel, also known as posigrade or along the positive V-bar in the business, if you're pointed in this direction and you add power, you will speed up, yes, but you will also force your spacecraft into a higher orbit. And that will mean that your orbital period, the time it takes to go around, will get longer. And so another spacecraft flying formation with you uh, will see you, uh, instead of going forward, they'll see you go up and backwards. Similarly, if you're facing backwards, retrograde or along the negative V-bar, and you accelerate, you'll actually slow your orbital velocity. Uh, but that means you'll drop into a lower, lower orbit, which will cause you to speed up. So, in this case, to the spacecraft you are flying with, you'll seem to go down, but then once again, you'll go backwards, because although you're now going faster, you're doing it in the direction to the rear of your spacecraft. In either case, the results are completely counterintuitive, which is what happened to McDivitt. Later analysis showed that the booster started out behind and below the capsule. So, McDivitt pointed to a spot below and behind the capsule and fired his thrusters. At first it looked good, he did in fact go down, because he had slowed down, and his orbiter, orbital altitude was decreasing. But then the booster seemed to go away from him as his orbital velocity picked up. The more he tried to correct the problem by pointing back at the booster and accelerating, the farther up and away the booster drifted. The problem was exacerbated by the other effect of orbital mechanics, which is that once you stop thrusting, you don't actually stop accelerating. 
This is because you haven't actually moved your spacecraft as much as you have changed its orbit. And in fact, the maximum effect of the change you just made won't be felt until the other side of the orbit. So unlike flying formation on Earth, where you make a small motion and then stop and your relative motions stabilize, in orbit, you make a small correction and then the relative motions not only don't stabilize, they continue to accelerate long after you stopped making adjustments. Which is exactly what happened to Jim McDivitt. Not only did the booster move away from him instead of coming closer, it continued to accelerate away from him even after he stopped trying to close the distance. It was bizarre and frustrating. But it was a necessary learning experience to come to the conclusion that rendezvous on orbit simply can't be flown by eye by the crew on orbit. Instead of using the target as a visual reference, what was actually required was to use a variety of sensors, including radar and ground tracking data, to calculate the actual orbital motion of the spacecraft and the target, and then to calculate how to adjust the orbit so that the spacecraft's orbit would eventually coincide with the target's orbit. Rendezvous thus becomes a series of calculated maneuvers or burns, rather than a matter of constant maneuvering and correction. Now, once you've matched your orbit closely enough to the target, you can then start making small corrections directly with respect to the target, more or less like you do on Earth. Now, to be fair, controllers on the ground, while not having completely worked out the process, were aware of the issue as it was unfolding. The trajectory specialists in MCC, who could not see what the crew saw on orbit, but who had the data on the relative orbits of the booster and the capsule, could sense that Jim McDivitt was making the wrong inputs, because they were thinking in circles, so to speak. But they had no way of either calculating exactly what was needed to be done, or of providing that input to the crew on orbit. The next time that NASA attempted a rendezvous, would be, they would be a lot smarter, and the process would actually get refined and worked out pretty quickly, to the point where rendezvous became a well-understood procedure uh, even before the Apollo program. In contrast to the rendezvous, which was surprisingly difficult, at White CVA, and with a few minor exceptions, was actually easier than had been anticipated. In a sense, EVA would go in the opposite direction from rendezvous, which turned out to be very difficult, but which NASA learned um, to make reasonably routine. Um, with EVA, the first test would be deceptively easy, but on the whole, EVA would turn out to be much more difficult than anybody gave it credit for. And, but all of that was kind of in the future. On orbit, Gemini 4 was just completing its first orbit when Jim McDivitt reluctantly turned his attention from the booster to his crewmate Ed White and the preparations for the EVA. White began pulling out and putting together the zip gun, unstowing the umbilical package, and performing a host of other steps in the checklist that McDivitt read to him. Now, uh, it's important to remember that both astronauts were actually in their spacesuits at this time. On the early Gemini flights, as a precaution, the crew wore their full suits and helmet for the entire flight. It's also important to remember that while we call it um, a suit, the name is a bit of a misnomer because a suit um, that is designed for EVA, as these suits were, is actually more like an astronaut's kind of personal spacecraft than a simple suit of clothes. 
Right now, although the designers of the suits spend a lot of time trying to make them as easy as possible to wear and to move in, the suits do need to provide not only protection, but critical life support and environmental controls like oxygen uh, and CO2 removal and keeping the temperature and humidity within the suit within acceptable limits. And that means that the suits are more than just a fabric covering. They have structure and form, and that means that moving and working in a spacesuit um, is never completely natural. Everything takes more time than it does when you're not wearing the suit. Now, of course, the astronauts had had a lot of time to get used to wearing the suits and working in them. They had been training with the new style of suit for more than six months by the time of the flight. But critically, they had never worn them in zero-G, which actually makes a significant difference. Zero-G in and of itself requires a lot of getting used to, but it also meant that the spacesuits felt and moved quite differently as well. They did not rest on the body the way they did in 1G. Things that things that aligned perfectly uh, on Earth didn't align exactly the same way on orbit. The differences may have been small, but they were always there. They added a sort of uh, friction to everything the crew needed to do that meant that every action, even things that were and had been completely natural in training, now required both mental and physical effort. As a result, the preparations uh, for the EVA were time-consuming, and more than a little frustrating, and also even a little exhausting. Um, as the process continued, though, the commander began to realize that White was already tired and sweating profusely, and Jim McDivitt made the command decision to postpone the EVA for one orbit and called a brief halt to the preparation so White could rest. And in the grand scheme of things, it was a small change to the flight plan and easily accommodated. But seen from the remove of 60 years, it was also a bit of a harbinger of the struggles that were to come as astronauts learned, learned that moving, working, and even living in space, and particularly on EVAs, was a lot harder than anyone expected it to be. Over time, NASA would learn how things worked in space, and planners and the crew would learn to calibrate their expectations for what could be accomplished in a given amount of time. But all that learning was still to come. After resuming the preparations at a more leisurely pace, the remainder of the preparations for the EVA went pretty smoothly. At the appointed time, over Australia, on the next pass, the crew began depressurizing the cabin and proceeded to open the hatch, or rather, they proceeded to try to open the hatch. In another, in retrospect, prescient moment, the hatch actually refused to open immediately. It took a significant amount of poking and prodding to get the mechanism to unlatch. It would not be the first time that NASA astronauts discovered that mechanisms respond in zero-g in unexpected ways. Once the hatch was open, Ed White floated out of the hatch and began the process of maneuvering around the capsule, testing out the ability of the zip gun to move him around the capsule. Overall, things went pretty smoothly. But then again, White was really not trying to accomplish anything other than a familiarization flight with some extended sightseeing. And while he professed himself pleased with the zip gun, other than the amount of oxygen he had to use, which ran out really quickly, um, Jim McDivitt uh, was later a lot less complimentary, relating that it was an ineffective because it was almost impossible to use it to translate in a straight line, because it had to be perfectly aligned with the white center of mass in order to induce unintended rotations. So after drifting halfway across the Pacific 
and across North America. As Gemini 4 passed over Florida, Chris Kraft announced that it was time to get Ed White back inside. Both Gus Grissom as Capcom and McDivitt on orbit delayed as long as possible to give White more time, but also, I suspect, to continue to enjoy the real sense of accomplishment that everyone felt at having pulled off the successful EVA with such an aggressive timeline. Still, when McDivitt finally insisted that White move to come back into the capsule, he famously responded that it was, quote, the saddest moment of my life. Of course, once he was back inside the capsule, there were a few moments of fairly high drama, as the crew discovered that they could not get the hatch closed. In a repeat of the issue that had occurred in trying to get it open in the first place, it took the combined efforts of both crew working for several minutes to get the hatch latched. At the end of the exercise, which had required White to twist the handle with both hands, and while McDivitt hooked his feet into his restraints and pulled on White with both hands, both crew were exhausted and sweating into their helmets. At the time, no one spent much time dwelling on it. As the crew had no other activities planned for the day, the execution shift in MCC handed over to the system shift, and Chris Kraft headed out to the press conference to take a well-deserved bow, for the whole team, on the ground, as well as on orbit. But, once again, it was a harbinger of things to come, in that McDivitt and White had discovered that routine tasks could rapidly escalate into zero-G wrestling matches as they fought against their suits, their own bodies, and the clock that ticked relentlessly in the background. But, meanwhile, Chris Kraft was confronting another aspect of the Gemini program, that NASA had not expected, and that was the sheer volume of media attention that it generated. We related last time how the attention had actually affected the flight when the TV lights had tripped the breaker in the Mercury Control Center. Well, this time the effect was less dramatic, but nonetheless significant, as NASA had discovered that the auditorium they had specifically designed to accommodate large media events with 800 seats was actually too small for the over 1,100 media that showed up. In the end, NASA had to rent a separate building at a cost that attracted some public comment to accommodate the demand. Meanwhile, Gemini 4 continued its journey around the Earth. The crew settled down to rest. The system shift began collecting and analyzing data. It had been a big day. In truth, one of the biggest in NASA's short history. NASA had finally pulled even with, or maybe even surpassed, the Soviets. As we've noted, the images broadcast that day of Ed White floating against the backdrop of the Earth are no less dramatic today than they were in that moment. But however proud the crew and the flight controllers of Gemini 4 might be, there was work to be done, so they went back to work. The rest of Gemini 4 was to use the NASA phrase pretty much nominal, in fact, it was almost uneventful. As McDivitt and White settled down to four days of doing routine experiments in their cramped little laboratory, made more cramped by the fact that it was decided not to press their luck by opening the hatch again to jettison the EVA equipment, as had originally been planned. The crew returned to Earth at the end of four days, and the Gemini program was truly up, off, and running, and it wouldn't look back. But we'll talk a little bit more about that next time, because that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down. <laughs>